Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. This is episode 793 of the Survival Podcast. It's Wednesday, November the 30th, and we have a really great guest hanging on the line, Mr. Zach Baker, and he is from BeFoundAlive.com, a survival training skill, uh, training school and gear shop. We'll have him in just a moment uh, to talk about a lot of really cool stuff. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERS Radio. That's MERS-radio.com. So M-U-R-S dash the word radio and a dot and a com. What is MERS Radio? It is a really cool way to combine secondary communications and security into a single package. So basically what you have is an unlicensed radio frequency with five frequencies and five sub-frequencies each. So that's 25 different frequencies you can use. And it's like handheld radios like any other type of radio, and you can use those for secondary communications. Integrated with that are motion detectors that will let you know if someone or something is moving around somewhere on your property by sending an alert that will sound something like this. Alert Sector 1 to your handhelds and your base stations. So really cool. And Rob over there, I'll tell you what, he doesn't have a lot of equipment. He has a small selection of equipment that he knows stone cold. So if you need help, you call the owner and he tells you, hey, this is how you do what you're trying to do, or no, my gear won't do what you're looking for. That's what you're really looking for from a supplier. Competence, quality, and integrity. You'll find that at MERS Radio. Check them out. Remember, the best way to visit MERS Radio and all our sponsors to visit the survivalpodcast.com first and click on the banners in the right-hand margin. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original sponsor. Why do I call them the original TSP sponsor? They were the first ones that ever got in touch with me and said, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We'd like to support your show and be a official sponsor of the Survival Podcast. And I was happy to have them. And Safe Castle has just been an awesome sponsor since day one, always taking care of the listener, making sure you have the stuff that you need, uh, making sure they take care of anything that ever goes wrong, and having really great stuff to choose from. They also have a really great program called their Discount Buyers Club. That's $49 a year, and you get big discounts on everything that they sell for the rest of your life. But guess what? If you're a member of the Member Support Brigade, they're such a big supporter of the show that you get that lifetime membership worth $49 for free. That that basically covers your first year of MSB. So how cool is that? So if you need something for your prepping stuff, check out Safe Castle today. They might have what you're looking for. And I can promise you this. If they do, you're going to get a great price and you're going to get great service to go along with it. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And we are now available on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network as well, streaming five days a week with some other really Really cool podcasters over there. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, if you're military law enforcement or Peace Corps active duty or prior service, get in touch with me uh, by email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com before you join. 
Tell me your, you know, a little few details of your service, where you where you served or where you're currently serving, and I will give you a special discount code for military members and law enforcement Peace Corps members only as a thank you for your service. Real quick today, a little kind of reminder of what you get in the member support brigade because sometimes I just gloss over that. Well, you get discounts to over 29 different vendors that sell the kind of stuff that if you're into this industry, you're probably buying, you know, throughout the year. So that that'll cover your cost of membership alone just in the discounts. You get over $200 worth of free ebooks and I'm always hitting up people to get you new memberships in fact I'll hit Zach up today and see if I can get him to give you a discount in his gear shop into his classes uh, toward the end listen for that he doesn't know because he's not on the line yet That's what the, the uh, Members Brigade is all about. It's about you supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. And it's about me going out there and getting the best, most valuable additional resources I can for you. And that way we both win. That's what the Survival Podcast Members Brigade is about. So if you've been on the fence about it or wondered exactly what it is, that kind of rounds it out for you. With that, I've got all the housekeeping taken care of. I'd like to introduce our guest now. His name is Zach Baker. Again, he refounded a, a school and gear shop called Be Found Alive back in 2003. And he did that because like he's like me. He grew up up with this stuff and he has a really big love for the outdoors learning about native cultures as a kid he was searching for arrowheads and stuff like that spent a lot of dirt time out there and that lifetime of spending the dirt time is what resulted in founding the school again befoundalive.com Great guy. Met him first uh, out in Salt Lake City, Utah at the Preparedness Expo, and he was interested in coming on the show. And uh, so we have him here today. Hey, Zach, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, glad to be here, Jack. Hey, so I met you out in Salt Lake City and uh, at the uh, Preparedness Expo out there. And uh, you came to me and you told me you have this, uh, this school called uh, Be Found Alive. And uh, you told me a little bit about what the school is about and what you teach out there. You want to just kind of give like a little bit of an overview for people as to, you know, what is Be Found Alive all about? If Be Found Alive is the product of uh, of years of working in the uh, I've worked in the uh, outdoor business for a long time. I've been teaching in the outdoors, and what happened was is I, I just continually kept coming back to uh, you know I started learning uh, wilderness survival and and self reliance in general when I was growing up. I had grandparents who grew up there the, during the depression, and you know we made our own soap. We we were into permaculture. Of course, that's what we didn't call it that then. But, uh, you know, I grew up with this self-reliant mindset uh, being, I guess, taught to me, you know, uh, until I was 20. And <clears throat> I got into, uh, uh, into the uh, teaching in the outdoors uh, while I was in college, and I just kept finding myself being drawn back to wilderness survival and backcountry safety. And so over the years, it's, that has evolved into what we do now, which is BeFoundAlive.com uh, is my website. It's basically our web presence uh, that promotes uh, self-reliance, wilderness survival. Uh, we teach uh, everything from primitive technology to uh, being more self-reliant in your home, a uh, pretty broad range of, uh, of skills that we're, that we're out there promoting. But, but more importantly, I think what we're trying to do is really is we're, we're trying to teach people to be more self-reliant in their lives in general, you know, whether that means, you know, getting out of debt, uh, having food storage, uh, or having, you know, being prepared for a wilderness outing. It's a pretty broad range of, of topics that we're really, we're really shooting for. 
But yeah, you know, I, here's my thoughts. Uh, and maybe it's just the industry I'm in now and, and doing the show every day, but I'm seeing more and more people that are like going to take up hunting or take up fishing. And I think that's great. But it also makes me think back to, you know, like when I was a kid, we used to go up, we used to call it up county in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, just going north in the state and you call it up county or whatever. Uh, but we would, you know, we'd go bear hunting and we'd be out there for three days. And we put this little kit together. We had all this stuff in case something went wrong while we were out there from first aid gear to being able to start a fire. Simple stuff like extra food, uh, lip balm, stuff because you're up in that cold wind. And then I think about the person that maybe is taking up hunting, which means they've never done it before. And they're going to go out into that environment. And most of them really, it's not like you, you grew up with it, I grew up with it. When you started out, I'm sure you had, you know, a dad or an uncle or a big brother at your side, and you get taught all this stuff. And by the time you're kind of on your own with it a little bit, uh, you know what you're doing. And I, I'm actually really concerned for a lot of the new outdoorsmen, I guess I would call them, that are rediscovering this if they don't take the skill set of take, looking after for themselves, you know, while they're out there. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, you know, it's funny because the last statistics I saw – uh, they were put out by the uh, outdoor recreation industry, um, stated that there were 140 million participants in our nation that are into some type of outdoor activity. Now, that activity may be bird watching down at the local park. It may be fishing. It may be hunting. It may be skiing. But that's a lot of people in our nation that are participating in some type of outdoor activity. And what's really astonished me is, you know, I've done a lot of work for the Wild Turkey Federation over the years and uh, hunting organizations, and what, what, it, what really surprises me is, is we'll be sitting in a room, I'll be sitting in a room full of, of uh, very experienced hunters, people who've hunted in Africa and uh, in, in parts of the world that most people don't even, haven't even heard of. And these guys don't know how to treat water to make it potable. Uh, you don't know how to start a fire without gasoline and a Bic lighter. Now, those are foundational skills. Those are requirements for us to live. And, and I, think, I think some of it goes back, Jack, to, uh, you know, in our nation, and, and I don't want to bash any, anything technological-wise, but we become so, so uh, addicted to technology. Uh, you know, I think it's funny. I, I follow several online survival forums, and and it's often there's often this game that's played out in these forums. Let's see who can create the smallest, most compact survival kit. Well, you know what? When the chips are down, I don't want to depend on something that fits in my front pocket. I want to have something that's going to provide me with. Uh, a little more than a, a base comfort level if I'm stuck in the wilderness. Um, we never saw, you know, mountain men in the Old West. Uh, uh, very rarely, you know, these guys would, would have mule trains full of supplies, and they lived in the wilderness for months and months and years on end. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm with you on that. The, the little pocket kits and stuff like that, they actually scare the hell out of me. I mean, when they first started coming out, I was like, well, that's kind of cool. That's kind of neat. My, my, then, then I started to realize that, you know, I would hear comments from somebody like, I've got my kit. And I'm like, wow, if you think you're really going to be able to, to make do with that in a, a true, not even maybe a certain, in fact, I would almost put it this way, that that kit could take what could be a pleasant outing in the woods and turn it into a survival situation if you think it's going to get you by. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, you know, a big part of what I've always been taught and which influences what I teach and, and, and uh, what I write about is the rule of three. You know, I remember learning this uh, when I was 16, and it's really influenced, uh, you know, what I do. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with the rule of threes, but for your listeners, it's, it's basically you can survive three minutes without air, three hours without shelter or warmth, three days without uh, a water, and three weeks without food. And, and obviously, it's just that those are guidelines because if I'm in Death Valley and it's 120, you know, that order is going to be a bit skewed. But I use that as kind of a general rule in, in building survival kits, in, in teaching uh, outdoor skills, because if I have an understanding that, you know, I'm going to – exposure is going to kill me quicker than anything else, then I'm going to prepare for that, which is my worst enemy. And – and there's all these commercial kits available that don't address those uh, those priorities. You know, it's funny because people immediately, these new kits come out and people immediately start talking about, you know, the water container is a, is a condom. Uh, there's a razor blade for a knife. And then there's, a, you know, there's nothing by way of, of shelter. Well, um, even for, you know, trained, seasoned survival uh, instructors building a shelter out of raw materials in the wilderness is extremely difficult because most people don't realize they're in a bad situation until it's too late, until they're hurt, until they're lost, until it's dark. You know, that's the problem I think with with uh, with a lot of the um, self-perpetuating survival, you know, hooey that's running rampant out there. You know, and it, and it's and it's per- propagated by television shows and survival books which aren't written by survival experts they're written by you know some Joe Schmo who's been commissioned to you know produce a, a book for the publisher you know because yeah, the, a hot topic yeah and the books are one thing but what really goes over the edge are some of the TV scenarios and I think that they're going to get worse not better from the, the people I've talked to from Nat Geo that I'm just like I can't even talk to you people I, I, I really can't. The one producer there, I told him, don't even call me. <laughs> as blunt as I could. And I think there is a lot of like myth put up there. But you brought up a really big, hot thing with me. Personally, all this gear and stuff, we can debate what's good and what's bad. But when it really comes down to it, it's that these things are going to – you have to do them in a state where it usually is too late by the time we're going to call it a survival situation. You're building a shelter because if you don't get a shelter built now, you might very well freeze to death tonight or uh, die of, uh, of, of heat exposure today. And you're in that situation, and then fear starts to take over. And I think that the biggest thing that people need before they're going to engage in these activities that might put them there – is the right mindset. So in your view, what's the mindset of a survivor and what kind of techniques can people use to help control panic and fear? Well, you know, we hear it all the time, you know, survival begins between our ears. You know, it's not so much what we're carrying as what we know. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of shelter building, fire, uh, fire creation, those are based on principles that, once mastered, um, are are relatively <clears throat> easy to apply to to other. Uh, for example, 
the bow drill, uh, if you or or using a uh, a flint and steel, if you can create a friction fire, and and if you can do that consistently, you can in my book you can make a fire pretty much with anything, because it's it requires such finesse and and uh, and, and knowledge to do and and skill. Um, so, you know, it's not only, but it's not only a set of skills and, and concepts that we need to know, but it's a mindset. Um, you know, there have been many instances here in, in the West, uh, where, uh, people have found themselves in bad situations and literally given up and laid down and died. Uh, I remember a few years back, there was a hunter that, uh, here in Utah, and he was out hunting. He found himself lost, and in a sheer panic, he dropped his pack, he dropped his firearm, he took his jacket off, and ran in a sprint through the forest. And, well, that hunter was found the following uh, spring, uh, and he, you know, obviously by that point, he was, uh, he was uh, uh, bones. He was gone. So... You know, the ability to uh, to control uh, fear and panic is crucial. So what I um, what I've come up with is a concept called the survivor's mantra. Now, you know, a mantra. You know, the technical definition of a mantra is the sound or a syllable, a group of words. Uh, it's a, it's an affirmation. Um, it's something that we uh, that we repeat that is repeated over and over in our minds and in essence what we're doing is we're well one we're occupying our thoughts so we don't allow uh the the creeping in of the panic um but they have found you know uh scientists have found that simply by repeating uh a phrase over and over again uh, it's not so much um it, it, it determines or it creates a, a different reality for us. And sure. it affects us on a physical level. Uh, so, so what would be an example of that? I mean, is, okay, is well, a phrase that we use for that. Okay, well, um, so the survivor's mantra is basically, um, it's something that you choose for yourself. And, um, <clears throat> and if you don't want to choose one, Something as simple as I'm a survivor, I'm a survivor, I'm a survivor, is you find something uh, short and sweet, something that you, something that you can really wrap your head around and, and put some faith into. Um, I know for myself, you know, I, I typically every summer uh, will take a trip by myself into the wilderness uh, to test my skills. And, um, you know, I find myself naturally drifting to thoughts of my family. Um, everything else kind of falls away. I don't think about my work. I don't think about anything, bills. I don't think anything along those lines, but I think about my family. So for me, uh, 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 a positive mantra for me would be, you know, I'll see my family soon. Um, I'll see my family soon. And simply by, by committing um, ourselves to that mantra and repeating it in our minds, you know, we see a shifting in our our consciousness and an ability to uh, to control that that fear, which builds up um, and inside. Um, have you ever felt that fear, Jack? 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you'd have to be completely dishonest with anybody, uh, you know, asking a question, have you ever felt serious fear uh, for your, your own safety before, and to say, no, of course you have. Yeah. I remember when I was when I was a teenager, I got lost in a mine, and uh, uh, and it was uh, it was my 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 light went out. Of course, I was a teenager, so I wasn't very smart. I only had one light with me. My light went out, and I got lost. And I felt that panic welling up inside, and uh, and with it comes the shakes, inability to think clearly because of the hormonal dump of adrenaline that comes with that fear and panic. And so, um, at the time, what, what saved me was my ability to, to, uh, to focus on, on, uh, higher power and, and allowed me to get out of that situation. But my whole life, I think back to that one and I just, that one circumstance and that, that, that sense of fear just was so overwhelming and overpowering. And so that was kind of the impetus for the survivor's mantra. And, and it's, yeah. you know, mantras have been used by, by different religions and philosophies for thousands of years as a way to, to help people uh, focus on, on becoming a better, you know, a better, their higher self or God or whatever you want to, whatever you want to focus on. Uh, they've been yeah, you know, Here's what it makes me think of. I've always tried to tell people that, like, one of my my core tenets is what you do matters. You know, the, the oncologists will say that two cancer patients, one is a pain in the ass, the other one just is a, a willing uh, patient, and both of them end up doing the same thing. The one that was a pain in the ass lives more often than the compliant one because they know what they do matters. And by focusing on that concept of even taking the step of doing it, you're also reinforcing to yourself that your actions are important. And I, I know what you mean by the fear because, I mean, I just think back, you know, hunting as a kid and, and, and you see the ridge line, and you know, the, the road's up there. And so you go up there and that's not the ridge where the road is. And you're even in an area you've been in most of your life and you know you're going to find your way out. But at first you're thinking, oh, crap, where the hell am I? And it's really easy to kind of take off in a direction you think you need to go and let that fear override you. And I think sometimes it could be that this type of a mantra thing is really good for a long-term survival situation. But in many instances, the only reason you end up in a long-term survival situation, and by that I mean more than a day, is because you let the fear overtake you and did something stupid instead of just stopping and thinking and getting rational and saying, hold on, it, it, you know, if I've only been out for 15 minutes, I can't be more than 15 minutes away from where I started. Yeah. So... Yeah. Unless I take off in a blind want run for 30 minutes, I'm probably going to be okay. For sure, for sure. Well, not only that, but if you use the old acronym STOP, which, you know, anytime you find yourself in a bad situation, you should apply that, which is stop, think. And, and my, my version of STOP is a little different. The, the traditional, I think, is stop, think, uh, observe, and plan. My version of it is stop, think, organize, and plan. So organize your resources make a plan and carry it out. But the simple, the simple act of stopping is, is in sitting down, you know, stopping. You find yourself lost, that panic coming on, stop and sit down. And it's the simple act of stopping physiologically is going to, going to start to calm your nerves. It, it's that, you know, it's that pacing that, that really, it's the pacing and the, you know, uh, uh, giving in, I guess, to that, to the, the hormonal dump that's going on 
that really I think doesn't allow us to to focus in on what we're what we need to be focusing in, in on and doing. Yeah, absolutely. In your notes that you sent me before the interview, you also mentioned something called autogenic breathing. You want to chat about that for a bit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So autogenic breathing is a technique that's been used uh, in our military for for many years. And what it is is, is it's a uh, it's a breathing technique that that I think dovetails perfectly with the survivor's mantra. But what autogenic breathing is is a it's just a breathing technique used to control fear. Um, they also call it combat breathing. Uh, it's taught to, uh, you know, snipers will use it. Um, and, and what it does is, is it just, it does just what we were talking about. It allows you to control that oxygen, I'm sorry, that hormonal bump, uh, the jitters that come with it. Um, it allows us to, to, to keep our heart rate down. And what autogenic breathing is, is, uh, it's basically, it's a breathing technique where you, know, you find yourself in, in a lot of times, you know, we think of, um, you know, meditational techniques. You know, we think of some guy, some new age guy sitting in a, someplace with candles and, and tapestries. But, you know, uh, autogenic breathing is something that we can do in any stressful situation. You know, whether it's dealing with uh, somebody at work that we don't get along with, with our, you know, spouses, or with a, uh, you know, with a survival situation. And what it is is this, is... Uh, Basically, um, it's a technique where you you uh, breathe in for and then for a count of three, you hold it for three seconds, and then you breathe out for a count of three, and you just com- you just continue you continue that process. So when you want to start that process is when you start feeling those jitters, when you start feeling your heart rate uh, increase, uh, and you can do this. Um, you can do this uh, for as long as necessary. It's easy. It's it's something that's very. Uh, it's you know it's it's almost too easy. It's one of those things like wait, how's that going to help me? Well, it will by simply focusing on your breathing in and out for for three, three, and three. You know that's going to you'll notice a marked difference after a minute or two. Um, you'll be able to to maintain and uh, control that. Uh, the panic. I was thinking that makes an awful lot of sense, and uh, I imagine it's one of the things you do teach your students. Yes, correct, correct. Very, very cool. So, I mean, you're a survival trainer, and you know, you do focus a lot on on the wilderness aspects. And so, to think we would get through an interview where we wouldn't talk about the role of threes is just completely ridiculous because <laughs> it, it's 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 something that's a core fundamental to the entire thing, but. You want to maybe talk a little bit about how it applies to a person's emergency preps, um, not just for wilderness survival, but maybe additionally urban survival. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, Jack, where we met at the uh, preparedness expo there in Salt Lake, um, I wandered around uh, looking at all the booths, and, and boy, there were sure a lot of people selling, uh, you know, uh, survival trinkets and uh you know, buy your year food supply. Um, I, I know a lot of people in Utah here that are are prepared uh, simply because it's it's taught by the predominant religion here. Um, you know, being prepared is kind of a, a core fundamental of something that they they've taught for years. Um, and but I, you know, I, I talk to these people and I look at their preparations and they have got you know rooms full of of freeze-dried food and canned goods and, and all of this, um, you know, 
useful, useful stuff. Don't get me wrong, but they don't have they don't have a way to heat their homes. They don't have extra fuel uh, to heat their homes or for their vehicles. They don't. They aren't prepared for the event of of having to abandon their homes. Here in Utah, the big um, the big uh, the big one that everybody keeps talking about here, uh, our potential natural disaster is a uh, earthquake, and they keep telling us it's going to come, it's going to come. It's not when or if, it's when it comes. And so, uh, I've seen statistics that show that if there was a you know eight uh, uh, earthquake in Salt Lake City, that majority of the homes in this valley would be flattened or uninhabitable. Well, if all of your food supply is in your basement and the house is on top of it, what good does it do you? But more importantly, how the rule of three really fits in is it helps in your preparation. If you have all the food in the world and and a 1,000 gallons of water in your basement, but yet you don't have the means to to warm your uh, your home, to keep your family, you know, warm, properly clothed, um, then that food storage is really not worth anything. Correct? Well, absolutely, because you're gonna you, you'll you'll freeze to death before you starve to death in any situation. Yeah. Well, and, you or, know, uh, it, it's a, it's a I think it's a, another uh, it's not a myth, but it's it's a core. The core belief in, in outdoor survival is, you know, exposure is the number one killer in the outdoors, you know, uh, and that's heat and cold exposure. You know, uh, how many summers in a row do we hear about in Europe where thousands of people die because there's a heat wave? Um, we, we, tend to, we tend to overlook those type of, we think exposure strictly as a, as a cold weather uh, phenomenon, but exposure also is, is heat related as well yeah i mean i with the heat thing i you know a lot of times when i talk to people and they say well you know what should we get um a lot of times i'll say well you know you probably you know especially when people have young kids you probably at least want to get like a, a, a base base generator a decent generator and a window unit air conditioner like oh, i'm worried about the apocalypse you know what you know if you just have power out for a couple weeks and you have an infant right and, and you can be all the tough guy you want to be but that doesn't mean that your family is going to be tough or your mother-in-law that's 86 years old and lives with you. And, and I think a lot of people, like, when they get all the tough guy bravado survival thing going on in their head, they forget that the whole – you mentioned your family is part of your mantra. I'm going to see my family again. Well, the whole reason you're trying to survive is so that you can take care of your family. You know, if you didn't have them, it wouldn't be that – it wouldn't be as important to you if you were the only person here. And that means we have to think about things more in a, a team mindset. You might be the team leader because you're the one that cares, but then you have to compensate for the inadequacies of the other people around you. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, something that, uh, you know, um, in, it work, I, I've been into mountaineering for a lot of years, and we always pace any type of, of, uh, of climbing trip. Uh, we, you always base your pace on the slowest member of your party. So, Survival preparations should be the same. You should accommodate the least skilled, the youngest, the oldest member of your family when making those preparations. And I think that that, that includes, like, if we go out on a camping trip, right, then we got to do the same thing. So yeah. it, it might be that, now we don't have an 86-year-old mother-in-law with us 
or maybe it's not something where we brought the toddler, but if we have a group of guys getting together, and, and I think a lot of times this creates survival situations, you get that healthy competition attitude going, and we really need to be thinking about not pushing it. So if you're the star athlete and you've got the guy with you that, you know, it would take a lot to get him out there with you, you know, uh, the best case scenario, you're going to make him miserable, he's never going to want to go again. Uh, worst case scenario, you're going to both end up in a bad situation because one of you uh, pushed the other one too far. Yeah, true, so you were mentioned some myths. What are some of your favorites? I'll give you one of mine to kick it off. This is the number one myth. I think I'm going to make a YouTube video about this because I'm ready to pull my flipping hair out. Uh, I talk a lot about the homesteading stuff and all, and I'll mention rabbits. And every time I mention a rabbit, I get this rabbit starvation bullshit. I'm sorry. That's the only <laughs> word I can describe it, right? So, you know, if you eat just too much protein and not enough fat, you're going to die. And it's like, okay, the you know, it's not completely a myth. So my understanding of the genesis of this is there were some people stuck up in the mountains they tried to live on rabbit, and it wasn't enough, and you know, like, eventually they succumbed to uh, starvation, and they, it's been labeled rabbit starvation. Well, I look at it, too. If you're in the mountains in the middle of winter, and there's nothing else for you to forage for, there's very little for the rabbit. So we've got a starving person eating a starving rabbit, uh, and we're going to be in a very fat-deficient state, and fat deficiency will kill you quicker, uh, certainly, than protein deficiency, and, and much faster uh, than carbohydrate deficiency. There's, there's societies that live on nothing but fat and protein. Uh, Eskimo, for example. So you can do it without the cars. You've got to have fat, and you will die without fat. That's not a myth. But the concept that if I ate a rabbit a day for a week, all of a sudden I'm going to be sick, it, it drives me crazy. The thought that somebody might actually be in a, a survival situation and be able to acquire a rabbit and think in some way that's bad drives me nuts. And I, so, like, that's one of my favorite all-time myths, and I think I'll get some statistics and caloric intake and all and, and put out a YouTube video on that. But what are some of your maybe favorite or maybe the better way to say his most hated survival myths? You know, you know, Jack, I, I see in the survival um, genre, I see different uh, – there's obviously divisions. You have people who are coming at survival from a military standpoint – you have people who are, you know, the bush hippie type people who are coming at it strictly from a primitive standpoint, a little more earth-based, and you you have your, uh, you know, and they're teaching, you know, or I'm sorry, what they're promoting is more of a a, a long-term living situation. They're not they're not per se, um, you know, addressing a, a short-term, uh, unexpected night out that kind of thing. Um, I, I think some of the things that that really get me is is uh, well, we talked about the the, the, the pocket-sized, you know, survival kits. I think that's ridiculous. Um, I think. So you mean I can't survive on a tea bag and a bullion cube? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you know, using you know, uh, putting condoms as a water carrier. You know, what's the old saying about condoms? Uh, you know, about uh, one prick and they're useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah. that applies even more so with, uh, if your water supply is dependent on these things. But I think probably the biggest myth that, that gets me is the space blanket. Technically. Oh, yeah. You mean the, the, the potato chip bag? Yeah. The Mylar <laughs> film is technically not a blanket by the true definition of what a blanket is. Um, and most people don't know this, but the space blanket is a – is a it's perishable. Um, I had one in my trunk for a few years. I'm sorry, it was behind the seat in the back of my truck. I left it in there on purpose, unopened, in a bag. Uh, it was in there for about two years, and I went to open that thing, and I couldn't even get the thing open. 
uh, the aluminization flakes off, the thin polyester film uh, becomes yellow and brittle, and you can't even get it open. And yeah. and yeah. so you know, um, you know, I cannot I cannot pick up a, a, a survival magazine or book or video without them talking about face blankets. And and I can't tell you how many people I know who have a stockpile of space blankets just in case, you know, and it just, it just boggles my mind. Now, granted, there are some uses of the space blanket that make it effect, an effective tool, but as something that you can wrap around your body to reflect, reflect 90% of your body heat, what a bunch of, you know, what a bunch of hooey. Well, my, my question is always about what about the 50% or actually more like 70% of loss that's going through your body into the ground? Yeah. You generally lose, and if you don't even know the skill set to prevent that, you're generally losing more of your heat uh, through ground contact than you are through air contact. Right. You notice the, 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 the air contact because you feel it more, but the actual draw out of the body is through that conduction uh, to the cold ground. Yeah. It, it, and it, I don't know if you've ever tried to actually use one of those when it does work, but it, it's like sl- sleeping in a giant ruffles bag. So you're trying to sleep in a stress situation, right? Let's say best case scenario, if you don't put a hole in it, you do make a ground layer, and you do get it over top of you. Uh, you're scared as hell. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You're trying to get a little bit of sleep while you can so that when the sun comes up, you can think. And every time you so much as breathe, you hear crinkle, crinkle, crackle. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it, it, you can't do it. You can't sleep with one of those things. I'm sorry. I, now, I don't know how you feel. I do like the stuff that's lined with that sort of that type of material that's more of a tarp. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Um, that's actually pretty effective. It's a pretty effective tool, but they're more substan- substantial. Um, what I was going to say about the, the sound, um, you know, if, if you did everything right, if before your trip you left a, you know, uh, itinerary with somebody, uh, with at least three people, um, and the rescuers are out looking for you, you're hunkered up underneath a tree somewhere, and even if there's the slightest breeze, man, you can't hear somebody talking next to you if you're wrapped in a space blanket. So you know what? You're absolutely you right. How are you going to be able to hear anybody? You couldn't hear a helicopter. It was, oh, oh, you know, unless it was right on top of you, you know? You know, you're absolutely right. I've never thought about that. I mean, but, that, that, but that's the truth because, you know, you got muffled stuff in the woods and you're huddled up and you're, especially if you're tired, you've been out there for a couple of days and somebody's yelling, yo, you're not, you know, unless they're standing directly next to you and you already see them, you're not going to hear it. No, you're not. Now, where they are effective is, is uh, you know, they were developed by the space industry to reflect radiant heat uh, away from um, spacecraft, you know, the aerospace industry. Um, they are very effective as a uh, fire reflector, a heat reflector behind a fire or in the back of a shelter. In fact, they'll, Absolutely. They'll, they'll, they're so effective, it'll be almost unbearable inside your shelter, depending on the size of your fire. Um, and also where they're, effect, they're effective as a means of signaling. Um, if you were to stand out in the sun and hold that open blanket out and shake it like a beach towel, uh, it throws off, you know, a huge um, reflection. They're, they're also cheap. They're cheap and compact, but I think from what you've said is, well, if you get them, fine, but, you know, practice and do some stuff with them once a year and throw them the hell away and get another one because 
if you have it in your kit for a couple of years, it's not going to work. No, it's not. It's not. Now, you know, uh, you know, I remember reading something a, a few years back uh, that the British military had tested them and their effectiveness, and uh, they'd found that they were no more useful than a sheet of plastic. So if that's the case, I'm going to get rid of the the space blanket, and I'm going to carry, you know, I'm going to carry some large contractor-sized trash bags. I'm going to carry something um, similar to that because it's going to have – it's more durable, one – and two, it's going to provide me with the ability to do so much more with it. If I have a, you know, if I have a large trash bag, I can use that in, you know, sky's the limit. You know, your imagination is the limit with that. Whereas with the, with the space blanket, it, you really are limited um, with what you can do with it. Uh, one of the, one of the nice, one of the things that I did with it, one, uh, I, I was looking for a way to boil some water. So I lined a small indentation hole in the ground, filled it with uh, some river water, and dropped hot stones in it uh, with the space blanket. Worked great. Um, also, it works great underneath your clothing. So if you're out in a T-shirt and jeans and you, you know, it's starting to drizzle or it's starting to get windy, you've got to maintain that core body dump. So cut that space blanket into a long strips, put it under your, wear it underneath your clothes. And uh, it yeah. creates a vapor barrier, keeping you warm. You do bring up an interesting thought, though, when you said earlier that the British military said it's no more effective than plastic. I I think you're better off with plastic. Then you can carry more of it. You can get a thicker amount of it. You can, it lasts longer. It does more. That's and more when you're talking about heat, yeah, And when you talk about heat retention there, um, what it makes me think of is back before the days of, you remember before there was a such thing as Gore-Tex, or even when it first came out and you were probably like me and too young and poor to afford it, um, to hunt turkeys and geese and ducks and stuff in, in the rain, uh, I went out and found this military surplus wetsuit, right? And it was basically a giant rubber suit. And uh, OD green, like, you know, Vietnam era stuff. And uh, it seemed like a great idea. Until you're out there and it's like 42 degrees and drizzling rain and you would think you're cold. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. You're wet, cold, and sweating at the same time because <laughs> the, the, the rubber and plastic and rubber retain a tremendous amount of heat uh, as long as you're doing – like you said, still you'd get cold. But if you were out moving around the swamp, you would literally be covered in sweat. And then when you'd stop, uh, you'd start to cool down because of the conduction cold back through. But if you put another layer on top of that, God, I can't imagine doing it unless I was trying to stay warm – um, I, I think that there's a big place for using plastic as that uh, heat reflection uh, tool. So um, what about some other stuff? I mean, um, do you have any thoughts on the whole boiling water for 10 minutes, Beth? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I still, you know, even to this day, the, I see that promoted on a regular basis. Um, people still selling potable aqua tablets. Um, you know, the bottom line is, 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 is iodine just isn't effective against a lot of the bugs that are, we have in our water. These days. cryptosporidium in particular, we have uh, here in, here in the Intermountain West, every summer we have huge outbreaks of crypto uh, in our communities. Uh, people are picking it up down at the local swimming pool, the public swimming pool. Uh, this is a bug that's so nasty that 
that the chlorine in our swimming pools and chlorine bromine won't kill it. Um, and iodine certainly doesn't do the job. Uh, boiling water, you know, you bring that water to a, a rolling boil and you're good to go. You've brought it to temperature. You've killed everything in it by that point. Um, I still, it's not as, it's not as prevalent, uh, I think, as some of the other myths, but I still am seeing that. Um, another yeah, one you got to do it ten minutes, and if you're at a certain elevation, it should be fifteen. Yeah. But basically, by the time water boils, you start to to pasteurize anything at 160 degrees. Yeah, and the time it takes for that water to get from 160 degrees to 212 degrees, you've done killed everything in there that could possibly do you harm. That boiling will kill if it's full of mercury or salt. You you, you, you don't fix that. But as far as biological organisms, if it boils, it's, it's, you've done killed it. Yeah. Um, another one that uh, that I've kind of been bugged by is the, and I think this is mostly you talked about. There's all different genres of people out there doing this, and I think this one comes kind of like from the eco hippies. Dude, man, you should build like your shelter out of like dead stuff instead of living stuff because you don't want to kill anything. And then I think of this guy with this like you know this little lean to built out of all this dead stuff next to his fire. And I go, gee, if I was going to show you how to build a really big fire, we would do that, and <laughs> we wouldn't go inside of there. <laughs> okay, so now you're opening a whole other can because you know the whole um, wilderness living. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to label the bush hippies because I have a lot of friends who are bush hippies and they're good people and they know a heck of a lot about a you, lot. You know, and I want to be fair before you go on. The people saying that are generally not the ones doing it, right? They're the ones that talk about doing it and what have you. So I, I don't want to be too hard on them either. And you can go ahead now. I just don't want, you know, I'm not, you know, for example, if I would think of like the most famous bush hippie survivalist I could find, it would be Cody Lundy. Yeah. And it's not going to be out there building a lean-to out of dried materials next to uh, a fire. And so, yeah, let's let's qualify that. But that is out there with certain people. Well, and, and there's a in, – in these skills, the bow drill, um, the hand drill, this this debris shelter that you're, that you're talking about, these skills – these – I'm sorry, these, uh, these, are, these are wilderness living skills – these are not emergency survival skills. And what gets me is, is I see these skills promoted over and over and over again as survival skills. Um, they're not. Uh, I, I don't know how well you can create a bow drill fire or a hand drill fire, but, you know, I've made hundreds of them, and I still have a difficult time depending on the humidity you know, um, the humidity in the air affects your ability to get a coal out of a friction fire. Um, there are just too many variables uh, that, and, you know, the ability to do this, to build, a, uh, let's say, a bow drill, uh, first of all, you have to have the correct materials. You have to be, you know, you have to be able to be in the mental uh, mind frame, mindset, to be able to wander around collecting those materials uh, the right type of wood, blah, 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 and then be physically able to do it. Um, there's just, you know, it's it's something that's, it's a great skill to own, don't get me wrong, but in the emergency survival situation, it's worthless. It's not something you want to depend on. 
And it's funny because there's a school of thought out there that says, you know, if you can't get it, then you need to practice more. It's it's the same school of thought that is that's promoting um, the solar still. And if you're not getting enough water out of one solar still, build two, build three. And, you know, what you're doing is you're just digging yourself deeper into a hole and increasing your likelihood of being carried out by search and rescue. Well, and what I'm thinking is if you, if you if you had enough material to build five solar stills, you probably aren't in the crust to begin with. And I think that the, the, the concept that some dude that's out there lost is going to have enough material, time, and energy in a, in a caloric deficit, uh, hydro deficit situation to dig five holes and going to have the plastic to build five solar stills, he's stupid. <laughs> it's kind of like an interesting parlor trick. Yeah, it works, and yeah, you can do it, but it's... It's. I don't think it's very practical. Oh, it's definitely not. And you know, here here in the uh, in the West, uh, where it's pretty darn dry, uh, you know, it's ironic because the type of soil that that works best in is a type of soil that's that's usually you can extract water from other means. Um, it, it's just one yeah. of those. It's just one of those things. Uh, um, another big thing is uh, I think people especially people who are into the long-term survival living or wilderness living, um, you know, learning those type of skills, um, you know, they refuse to uh, look at alternative sources of, uh, of uh, protein, food. Um, you know, I've seen this on some recent television shows. I'm not going to name any names, but there are people that refuse to look at any type of alternative uh, means of uh, nutrition other than something that they've shot with their bow or rifle or whatever. Whereas the, the, the facts are, um, you know, people who lived on this land long before we did didn't live on buffalo and deer like so many movies portray. Lots of, lots of Native people who lived in this continent were living off of rodents and insects and they were finding their protein sources from wherever they could get it. Uh, uh, sure, and I think that, I mean, yeah, if you can get a buffalo, you take it, but anybody who's a hunter knows it's not called shopping, it's called hunting. <laughs> yeah. And it's not necessarily, I mean, one of the things I was just listening to a, a lecture Bill Mollison did uh, from the permaculture side of things, he was talking about how uh, they live on all these rodents down in these certain parts of South America where they're still living very much kind of a, a crossover, agri, you know, local agriculture slash hunter-gatherer society. And the way they cook these rodents is they heat up two flat rocks, so like screaming hot. And then they grab a little rodent who's probably been like in some kind of live trap, and they just smack him down on the rock. And then they use something to hold the, the big rock, and they just, you know, smash him in between there, and they make like a, a cooked rodent pancake. It takes a couple <laughs> seconds to cook him. And, uh, you know, that's reality. That, yeah. you know, they, they eat everything, the bones and, and, and nerds and all the hair singes off with these rocks. Uh, I Sometimes with Mollison, I don't know if he's spinning a yarn or what, but that one sounds plausible. <laughs> well, well one, some of the things we do in our classes is we'll, we'll, um, we'll set deadfalls. We'll, we use a Paiute deadfall trap because it's, it's uh, I think it's probably one of the, the most effective um, traps that you can build. It requires very little uh, Construction and it's it's it has a hair trigger, you know it's, it's very fast uh, trigger, 
And we'll I think it's a lot easier for people to learn than a figure four, too. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll set up several of these, um, and uh, you know we'll look for we'll look for rodent sign or or uh, you know squirrels, local squirrels. We'll find, you know, we'll 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 find find where we need you know rodent trails, whatever. We'll we'll set up uh, along uh, uh, cliff faces and. Uh, and then we'll check them, you know, once a day. And seeing that we have Hunter virus and other type of uh, nasty potential illnesses that are carried by uh, the droppings and uh, the uh, the mice, I'm sorry, the fleas that live on the mice and the rodents that we're catching, what we'll do is we'll once we once we have one in our trap, we uh, I'll take a stick that looks like a fishing rod with a loop on the end, a little slip knot. And I will pick up that rodent with that. Won't touch it with my hands. There's been many cases of uh, of people down the Navajo reservation. Uh, typically, what they do is when they trap something like in that means in, in that fashion, they'll slip it underneath uh, in underneath their belt. They'll carry it right against their body, and uh, the fleas will jump, obviously, to the next warmest um, heat source, which is whoever the, the hunter. And uh, will then pass on whatever the illnesses that 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 flea was carrying, that rodent was carrying. So we make sure we keep any rodents far away from our bodies when we're taking them back to camp. And then we'll take them back to camp. We'll throw them on the fire. We'll let uh, we'll put them on some hot coals, never on the flame. Put them on the hot coals. Let the hair singe off. And what we'll do is we'll watch it's the anus and the mouth in its mouth. And once those start to bubble, then you'll know that that mouse, squirrel, whatever, is to temperature inside. And then what we'll do is we'll scoop out the entrails so nobody gets a mouthful of that. And then, um, you know, we'll eat it. And, <laughs> and, and, and if we have to, what we'll do is we'll leave it on the fire longer and allow all of the moisture to cook out of it. And then, uh, and this is the technique that the Paiutes use, use here in the desert. They would then take that, that dried out mouse, bones and all, they would pound it into a powder, and basically what they were making is a protein powder. And then they sure. carry, carry that protein powder with them. Um, it not, not only provided protein, but it also provided calcium from the bones, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, the nutrients, uh, were, that were, were preserved in that powder. And not to mention fat. So, yeah. so you rabbit myth people. There's your there's your source of fat. Yeah, and they would <laughs> you got use marrow. That, that protein powder would be sprinkled into stews uh, to thicken. And uh, you know, geez, if all you have is a is a if you're if you're lean on on any type of protein, you know, adding this powder to your stew, your vegetable stew that you've made out of you know lamb's quarter and whatever else you could scavenge. You know, and then you, you're you're adding, you know, content, nutrient content. Awesome. I got one more myth for you before we kind of wrap up here. I want to see what you think about this one. Moss only grows on the south side of the tree, or the north side of the tree. <laughs> Not that it even matters. That's great. Uh, you know what? I hear that one all the time. We have here here in Utah. You know, we have a lot of uh, of aspens. Interesting thing is, uh, you get a, on the aspen trees, they, a, a white powder develops on the south sides of those trees. 
And you can actually take that white powder and use it as a sunscreen. Now we'll take it and put it under our eyes, put it on our face, use it as a sunscreen. But only on it only is on the south side. And uh, in that particular case, you know. That works, but the, uh, but the moss, I've, I've, I had a guy with me, you know, uh, we were taking a walk one day and he told me that and I said, come here. <laughs> so we were, we were on this, uh, basically we were on the, uh, the, the north side of a ridge line where it's always pretty well shaded. And I said, you see that tree? Tell me which side is which. And he walks around it and there's moss growing all the way around the tree. Um, so I just, the, the, the moss on the, the, the north side of the tree thing, I just, I, I, I don't really get where people even – I guess it can happen in certain environments, and the more prevalent side is likely to be the case, but yeah. there's better ways to find your direction than that. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's – there's yeah, I mean, come on. That's just simply observing your, your surroundings, um, the type of vegetation growing on certain sides of valleys or, you know, there's there's so many easier ways to determine, I think, your – orientation. You know, it's funny, I've seen that myth actually on old Daniel Boone reruns. I think that's where it's from. I remember seeing that as a kid, too, and I, I thought, oh, that's cool, and I went out and looked in the woods and went, well, that can't be possible, because it's not all one direct. you know, it's not everywhere. <laughs> there are four directions. Hey, I got one more for you that just, I, I see, I see in every survival book out there, is the universal edibility test for plants. Okay, go ahead. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, uh, you're familiar with it, right? You know, there's a series yep. of steps that you go through to determine the edibility of, of, of a wild Break plant. Break it, rub it on your skin, exactly. taste it with your tongue, yeah, all that crap. Well, well, there are a number of plants that – if you even put a small amount of that into your mouth, will kill you. And it just is not – basically, my approach to wild plants is this, is there are enough out there that are easily identifiable that are um, available everywhere. You know, you learn a dozen plants, and you'll be set for anywhere in, in North America, you know, all, you know, pine trees, all grasses are edible. Obviously, dandelion is everywhere. We have most of these things growing in our yard, you know. Instead of relying on some um, some test uh, to determine, you know, uh, that, that possibly could be putting your life in danger, um, instead of doing that, go out there and learn a few easy plants. You don't have to pick up a book with a thousand different plants and, and expect to learn them all. Um, you know, learn, you know, learn some basics, learn some easy to identify cattail. Who doesn't know what a cattail looks like? Well, and the beautiful thing about a cattail is it doesn't have a lot of mimics. There's nothing out there that, and I would say with dandelion as well, those are not just well known. They don't have mimics where, you know, we can, we can, you know, talk about death cameras for, for uh, example. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's things that look very, very similar and, uh, and then there's things I think people, you know, say there's mimics, but you really have to not know what you're doing to not know the difference between, like, let's say a wild onion and a mimic of that, because a mimic of it looks more like a grass blade. But um, if you stick to the stuff that's well known and has few mimics, you're going to do okay. My other thing with that is food is seldom the most important thing in an acute situation. 
So risking eating a piece of plant life, even if it's the right thing, it's only going to have a minimal caloric value to it anyway when you're in a one-day situation. It's probably taking a risk for no good reason, like with mushrooms. Uh, I, I, I know several different mushrooms that are easy to identify that we gather from the forest, and that's fine for foraging. But if you're in a survival situation, you don't know what a mushroom is, you're better off to leave it alone because there's very little, you know, uh, caloric value there anyway. Yeah. You know what? Mushrooms scare the hell out of me. <laughs> I, 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 have heard, that. I have heard too many horror stories of, of uh, you know, mycologists uh, taking mushrooms home to their family and, and killing them. There's a myth on that one, too, that I absolutely know is false because I've tested it with Destroying Angel, which is, you know, if you want to, if you want to die, go out and eat a few of those. Uh, and it was a myth that was taught to me by my grandparents. You go out and you get the mushrooms, you bring them home, and you put them in the pot to blanch them and then freeze them. So you just boil them for a little bit. You throw a silver dollar in there. If the silver dollar tarnishes while you're doing that, there's a, the poisonous mushroom in there and throw it all away. Um, guess what? It's never going to tarnish. I don't even know where the hell that came from. Uh, so when I was a kid, you know, I'm like, I don't know if this makes sense. Like, threw a coffee can and threw a chunk of silver in there and, and, and pulled up some destroying angels, and uh, it didn't do nothing. So, I mean, there's tons of myths out there, and I just say don't rely. If, if you're not sure, don't rely on it yeah. just because you heard it somewhere. Yeah, and, so, and, and you know, uh, we've got to, uh, you know, I, I would encourage people to uh, to to locally go find some. There are enough survival schools and, and people out there teaching this stuff, find somebody in your lo- in your vicinity, and go learn from somebody, you know. And and not only that, but go home and test it. You know, there's too many armchair theorists out there that are spending way too much time trying to fit their survival kit into a symbol, you know. Um, yep. Get out and do it. Get out and do it, yep. and you will quickly see. This does this work? Does this not work? You know? You know, I keep threatening to do this, but I keep just thinking I'm going to get just ramrodded by the armchair ass clowns, as I call them, if I do this on YouTube. I think there are a tremendous number of people out there that if you handed them a Bic lighter in a relatively dry forest, something that maybe hadn't rained for a couple days, and said, go make a fire, would play hell building a fire with a Bic lighter in their hand. (laughs) Even if it's not that windy, and even if it's not that wet. That if you know they 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 can't do it with anything less than lighter fluid and charcoal or at least kiln dried pieces of wood, yeah. and I think that people need to before you've decided that because you bought a fire piston or a flint steel or learned how to make a coal with a bow, bow drill, before you say okay now I can make a fire as long as I have this on me, can you make a fire? And I know some people like they're laughing, but I've seen it. I've seen people, you know, say, well, let's go get some lighter fluid. We don't need a lighter fluid. We have some stuff there, and they, they can't do it. They don't know how. They've never done it before. Well, and I think is, in all these skills, you need to practice them. Yeah, fire is a foundational skill. I mean, you know, there, there, there are Aboriginal people who are hunter-gatherers who still are, you know, living today. And, and to them, fire is life, you know. And no matter how far you go back in, in, in our evolution, you know, fire is the predominant tool that allowed us to walk out of the bush, you know, and 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 become what we are today. 
Absolutely. And I'll, I'll give you a book recommendation. You may have read this, you may have not. It's an old fiction book. That is, it's kind of, kind of a weird thing by a guy named Piers Anthony. And it's based on a family that keeps getting reborn in time, starting off like the dawn of humanity coming forward and following this family through. And one of the members of the family is a firekeeper or firemaker. Uh, I think the, the character's name was Blaze in the, uh, in, in, the, in the book, but it's called Isle of Women. And it, it's really fascinating. Uh, look at history, honestly. Uh, and survival in, uh, you know, let's say the pre-civilization eventually gets to, you know, what we would call civilization stage. And it's more of a theatrical thing at that point. There's still some cool stuff in there, but when you get, like, through the first three or four generations in this prehistoric era, it's really cool all the factual stuff that the guy draws on to tell and weave the story. It's, a, it's, it's really a pretty cool book. What was it called again? It's called Isle of Women. And, you know, it starts out with humans basically using water and trees as protection from predators. And they're on this island, and that's the island that when men from another band are looking for someone as a mate, they go to this Isle of Women to, to meet a prospective mate. Uh, they have, you know, they have the whole thing where the tribe's going to let them on or not. It's, but it's really cool when it talks about the fire-making component. And how, like, the fire maker, uh, fire keeper in the beginning was a guy that actually knew how to, 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 to not even make fire, but acquire it from a natural source and keep it, right? And, like, a smudge, uh, smudge pot type situation. And then, you know, later in the story, he is like a blacksmith, right? So they keep, like, as, as, as time progresses, each person's skill set comes forward into the modern equivalent. And it ends in this post-apocalyptic world where people are living on roaches and algae. But uh, it's really a great book. <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting. And if well, you know, if you if you believe uh, predominant anthropological theorists, uh, you know they believe that the uh, man using fire as a tool. Actually, it was pre-man using fire as a tool is what allowed us to evolve into uh, Homo sapiens. Um, it was that. It was that ability to to um, cook our meat, our protein, that allowed our brains to develop to the point that they are now. That allowed us to reason and and evolve into into modern humans. Well, and I'd look at the modern world, and I would extrapolate out to say that everything that enables our modern society is energy based, and all energy is some sort or form or shape of fire. That's like when you talk about your five five primary survival needs, and I take that over into uh, modern survivalism and surviving at your house and becoming independent self-sufficiency, I actually just take the fire component and I change it to energy because it's a fire component in your home when you have a solar panel that provides electricity. Mm -hmm. That's light. Well, in the wilderness, that fire is light. So it, it makes sense to me that whether you believe – uh, a creationist or intelligent design or, or a complete uh, evolutionary state that the argument works anyway. Yeah. I say that to stop hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> smart, smart move. But send it on, folks. I can take it. It's, it's a typical day for me. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you want to maybe wrap up with, with one thing for, like, i got a lot of people that listen that are in this urban uh, lifestyle and they don't get out there and hunt a lot. So, but they're concerned about preparedness. So kind of wrap it up with how wilderness survival skills, camping survival skills, that stuff kind of ties back in uh, to an urban survival situation. Well, you know, basically um, the rule of three uh, applies to wilderness, whether you're in a concrete jungle or in a wilderness environment. Um, 
they're, they're, they're the same. The only difference is, is you have a different set of resources. Much easier in an urban environment. You know, uh, why? why do you say that? I agree with you, but why do you say that? Why is it easier in an urban environment? Because, because us as human beings are, uh, I'm sorry, Western civilized, the culture that we live in, um, it's easier for us to look at a, a trash heap and recognize useful tools than it is for us. Our eye hasn't been trained. We've been separated from, from, uh, living close to the earth for so long. We look at the wilderness and we see, you know, lions and tigers and bears. We're afraid. Uh, I can go into the city dump and probably, you know, yeah. find a truckload of tools. I'll agree with that. I think that, like, the old joke was, you know, I went out, out to Montana for my vacation and the guy, I remember some cartoon, and the guy says, well, do you, you see a lot of great scenery? And he goes, no, nah, there are too many mountains in the way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think there is a loss of the eye, but I would also just say I think there's just wherever humans are, there's waste, and waste is resources. So uh, if I'm out in the in in, in the, the Musatooth wilderness, there's certain things out there that in a natural state I could kind of use as cordage. I can certainly find plants that I can make into cordage. Uh, maybe I can improvise and use, uh, if I'm smart and I've replaced my boot laces with paracord, I can pull the, the cordage out of the paracord, put the jackets back in my boots and continue to have my boots laced up. There's ways I can get by. But if you put me in any urban situation, give me five minutes and I'll find you 20 feet of cordage. <laughs> and ready to go and ready to use. If you put me out in the wilderness, there's ways I can make and improvise a container, or hopefully I brought one myself. Give me five minutes in an urban, urban situation, I will find you a container that you can boil water in. Yeah. And, and I mean, so I think there's just, there's, it, because there's such a waste of resources, there's a ton of resource availability in an urban situation, um, which I think makes it much easier, especially in a short-term situation. Of course, the other problem is there's lots of other people there, and in a breakdown, then you've got a threat. But if you can put people together and build community, you actually, again, have another advantage. You know, And I think that there's, there's trade-offs with both. I do think urban survival... Contrary to the other last myth, I guess we'll talk about where people are going to run off if the shit is the fan into the woods with no training. Um, urban survival is actually easier in most instances. For sure, uh, unless there's a nuclear bomb going off downtown or something like that. That that's a game changer. But otherwise, I think it's easier. Or a pandemic. Sure, sure. You then you got to you got to break the, the the contact right, and that's that's less about urban versus uh, rural. And more about just separation distance between human beings. Yeah. Hey, have you watched me that uh, Walking Dead, that zombie show that's been playing on? No, I haven't seen that yet. Is it any good? You know what? It's it's interesting. I'm not a big TV fan, but um, uh, my son kind of turned me on to this show, and and it's interesting to see not only how they deal with with the dead, uh, but the the social cohesion. Among the group of uninfected uninfected people, and uh, it's interesting. I think it's an interesting play on power, depending on each other, good and bad. I, I think that's more natural state. I think you know, no matter how far you go back, we're all we all come from tribal people, people who live in small family or clan units. They live close to the earth. They depended on one another, and I think it's our natural—it's our natural state socially, you know—to go to move Absolutely. back into that 
if the if the situation uh, needs arises. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first started doing the show, I had some people ask me why I'm so optimistic, and I said because I believe we will rebuild. That's what we do as human beings. And if we took an island somewhere and took a whole bunch of people and dumped them on it and said you're on your own, fend for yourself assuming they could get through like the first year and develop some systems and, and get by and had some root supply to start out with and then could you know kind of build up to sustainability, you'd come back in five years, you'd find kids going to school, you'd find a governmental system of some sort, you'd find an education system, you'd find people divided into professions and what have you. And then somebody emailed me and he said, yeah, they call that Australia. And uh, I was like, well, yeah. I mean, except for what happened to the indigenous peoples there, it's, it's not far off. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm a big believer in that, too. The show I liked that they canceled, that I thought maybe they made it a little too comfortable for people to, to tell the storyline in, but overall I thought was pretty interesting dynamic was Jericho. I don't know if you ever saw that one. That was out. Uh, no, I, I never saw that one. That was, I, I don't even remember what supposedly. I think it was like a nuclear attack had happened, but it was only in certain spots, and they shut down the infrastructure. And it was this little town in Colorado or something like that, and they weren't hit with radiation or explosions or whatever, but the, all the systems of support were just gone. And they just had to make do as a town. It was pretty interesting, but I think it only made it like one season. But, um, hey, man, this has been a great interview. But you've got your school, you've got your shop, your website's at BeFoundAlive.com. Um, did I hit you up here? Maybe you can do something for our members, uh, for the Member Support Brigade? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So sure. uh, I'll, I'll get with you after the show, and we'll get a code set up or something like that. Okay, uh, yeah. But I think people should check your site out. Again, it's uh, BeFoundAlive.com. And uh, Zach's been a great interview, man. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So, uh, folks, with that, we'll wrap up. Again, can't recommend it highly enough. Get on over to BeFoundAlive.com. I'll have a link in today's show notes. Uh, maybe we'll have Zach on in the, back on in the future, and I'll let you know what he does for you guys in the brigade. Uh, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Zach Baker, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is you